You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Because in the words of MC Hammer, we got to pray just to make it today, right? Um, all right, God, thanks for, um, thank you for uh, your love for us and the knowledge that your perfect love cast out fear. And so I pray that this would be hopeful and encouraging. And uh, I pray that we leave here encouraged and at peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, here's the premise of this series. Uh, last year, and I do this about every three years, where I'll kind of almost do like a sociology study with teenagers. I'll get together and I'll basically ask them, what is it like to be a teenager? Um, what's it like to be you? And so I'll ask them questions about, you know, social media, about school, about, you know, stress and anxiety, about... Uh, drinking and drugs and partying about their parents and about you know all kinds of things just to try to you know I'll spend about an hour with them and uh, I take notes like I take down quotes and they know that they, you know I tell them like this is I'm trying to understand better uh, what it's like to be in your shoes I try to advocate for you guys help your parents understand the world you live in so that they can be more patient and understanding with what your experience is and so it was very interesting when I did this study so to speak uh, last year um, was there was a big shift. Here was the shift. Uh, I asked students, I say, what are the two negative emotions that your peers struggle with? I'm really asking what they struggle with, but if you ask them directly, they're not going to tell you anything. So you say, you be an observer of your peers. What would you say are the two negative emotions that your peers are struggling with the most? Have not had a student in the last like six years not say stress and anxiety as one of the two. Um, anxiety rates among students are extraordinarily high these days. Uh, Post-COVID, 52% of American teenagers have anxiety levels that are like diagnosably a disorder. It's like one in two. It is off the, it's off the charts. And uh, pre-COVID, it was like 32%, which, you know, COVID obviously exacerbated this, um, but it's just, a, it's just a reality. All right, so I asked the parent, I asked the students, um, what is the source of your stress? Is it like the culture? Is it your teachers? Is it your parents? And five years ago, kids said across the board with the exception of like two kids and 25 they said it's the culture it's just the waters that we swim in there's just so much competition and so much pressure this time every single kid said parents parents are the source of my stress i know tough that's tough 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 and so um as i listened to what they were you know i was like tell me more about that sorry guys there's gonna be good news in this i promise uh, but I know that's a tough, a tough pill to swallow. So I asked them, you know, tell me more about this. And what I could start to see is that in one sense, there was a great sense of hyper control by parents. Parents feeling a need to hyper control their kids, micromanage, be a helicopter. And you could tell from what they were saying that they could this is more some of this was impl this is more implicit, but you could tell that it was parents operating out of fear. Parents are afraid, and the response to fear is hyper-control. And so here were some quotes from some kids. They, by the way, they, they knew that I, they, like, I'm not quoting any kid. And um, it's not like I told any of the parents that this was the nature of the conversation. But you know, this first student said, parents get caught up in their kid's own situation. They try to meddle and control everything. That was what one kid said. Second kid said, parents are out to get me. I feel like I start out life on probation. Okay, now this was a kid who is like, perfect kid. I know there's no such thing as a perfect kid. But I'm not, this was not like a kid who's like, 
you know, Wildest Friday Night and Rebellious and Bad and all this kind of stuff. This was like a rule-following, straight lace kid said this. Who has great parents? Um, number three, uh, parents care about school so much, so they freak out if you do bad. Okay, so this kind of paints a picture here of like the fear amongst the parents that's kind of being projected onto the kids and creating anxiety. All right, so one thing to start out with is like the parental fear I think is, is significantly higher. And it's not, it's not just like parents are just doing a bad job these days. There are some significant inflection points in history that parents today are living through that are very, very intense. This really, this, this kind of trend of like anxiety amongst teenagers um, and uh, these things related to parental control, uh, they really kind of start with mass media. Um, as like cable news gets started in the 1980s, um, you have so much information coming to parents. And it's, you know, there's, think about this, like a good example of this is like in the 1980s, um, there was uh, this, it was thought that there was this epidemic of child abduction. That, you know, that kids were being kidnapped all the time. And, you know, and, and, and th that's a perception people have that there's really high risk of child abduction such that, you know, there was, uh, what's the Stranger Things, that show, you know, where kids were kind of free to do what they wanted. I kind of grew up like that. It was like, you know, I got on my bike, I rode around South Cherokee Dunn, and, you know, it was like, hey, mom, dad, see you at dinner time, you know. The deuce is I'm seven years old, I got this, you know. <laughs> um, not quite that bad, but, but truly, you know, had a ton of freedom. And so now there's a sense of parents and, you know, parents is kind of tightening up because there's a, more of a fear of child abduction. You know, child abduction is... Uh, so rare that it is like statistically insignificant. The likelihood, there is far more likelihood that a kid will die from falling off their bike than being abducted by someone. There, you know, there, there is, yeah, there is, child abduction is so rare that, and, and, and I'm, I'm sorry, if someone here has had an experience with that, and, and I'm like, uh, that, sorry, I could see if you'd had an experience with that where it would be, that what I'm saying would be insensitive, so forgive me if I've done that. But I would say, statistically speaking, it is so rare that it is like not, not really worth worrying about. But because of mass media, and because of amber, amber alerts, and because of things like that, which you know I think are probably good things, we have a perception, we have a perception that this is a, this is a, a, you know, a, a prevalent problem that, we, that needs to influence the way we're raising our kids. Um, so then you have mass media and you have all this information. Most of, it is, most of the stuff that gets clicks is stuff that is scary, that scares the crud out of parents. And so you have mass media, but then you have the internet. With the internet, you have all this access to all this information. And then it gets amplified another level with social media. Because we're on Facebook and everyone, you know, uh, everyone posts all the different harmful things that, you know, could harm your kids or could kill you or whatever, you know? And so, um, and so with that being said, it is, a, it is understandable that parents are very fearful. Uh, it's understandable. Parents, because y'all, the, the dawn of the internet and social media and, and smartphones is perhaps the biggest inflection point in human history. Think about it. It is totally changing the way that we live, the way 
that we conceive of ourselves, the way that we conceive of relationships, is possibly the biggest inflection point in human history. So raising kids at the biggest inflection point in human history, it's understandable that it would be scary because there's no precedent for this. You know, we are pioneers raising kids in a brave new world. And so the, the children that we are raising are the first generation of children to live their whole life with the presence of internet and with smartphones and social media. Like we, in this room, um, I'm, I'm 42, so, uh, but, but most of us can remember a day where there was like, you know, there was just like, there was no internet, right? I, I sent my first email my senior year of high school. And I can remember the teacher being like, you have to turn in your papers on this thing called email because they're gonna expect you to do that in college and so you need to be prepared. It's like, whatever. It's like this email thing is gonna take off, you know? <laughs> you know, and so we have a, we can remember a day when there was no internet. We can remember life without computers. We can remember life before Netflix and all these things. We can remember when you just had to call. All you could do was call on the phone and your parents were around and they could kind of overhear conversations because you know you had the portable phone but the range wasn't that good so you know anyhow so we have that these kids do not so it's very it's very very different world in which we live and so um so with that being said uh what what i want to do in this series is to talk about fear and parenting and talk about how it is that who god is and what god has done for us in christ sets us at ease because honestly the it, all, it always comes back to like, what's the best thing you can do for your child? The best thing you can do for your child is to get yourself in a spiritually, emotionally healthy place. That's the best thing you can do for your child. Because when you're close to the Lord, you're under his word, you're in an emotionally healthy place, you're going to relate to your child in, in the best way possible. As opposed to when we're freaked out, and we're very disconnected from the Lord and not operating under God's truth and all of our baggage and all of our junk is all mixed up in there, we're gonna to relate to our kids in a, in a more dysfunctional way. And unfortunately that, you know, we're sinners and that's kind of the norm and God's grace is bigger. But you know, in terms of things that we can control, um, us being in a place, uh, you know, uh, relating to our children in a, from a place of peace, hope, joy, and love is the, is the best thing we can do for our kids. So the good news is like, you know, we are the sons and daughters of the Most High God. Um, we are adopted children of God, and we live with the very presence of God himself in our heart. The Holy Spirit dwells in our heart. And so we have these assets where we are able to take a deep breath, take a couple steps back, and not freak out. And we all know it's not fun to operate out of fear. It's not fun to operate from a freak out standpoint. And it's not pleasant. And so there's a, there's a tremendous amount of hope um, found in the Lord to be able to, errant, to, to parent out of a place of peace and health. And so today, the first thing we want to look at is good fear versus bad fear. Good fear versus bad fear. I'm going to try to slip two micro lessons into this class. hope it's not too, content, but you, uh, too, too much content. But if you don't have this worksheet, good fear versus bad fear. All right, so... This is going to be the central concept that we are going to um, come back to in every class. Good fear versus bad fear. And that's what we're doing on the podcast as well, is we'll relate every one of these issues. And, and you know, in this class, we'll probably do five or six issues on the podcast. We'll probably do 12. So there's going to be a lot, there's going to be a lot of reinforcement of this. Um, 
But uh, and, and some of those issues will be like uh, fear of your child's rejection, fear of your, your, your children being hurt, fear of feeling like you're not doing, like you're failing your kids, like you're not giving your kids sufficient opportunities. All these different fears that we kind of observe um, observe in, uh, in, in, you know, in parenting and that we experience ourselves. And so good fear versus bad fear. All right, so good fear involves all respect and adoration for the Lord. Um, good fear is really worship, worship and praise of God. That's a good, that, that is how, what fear is meant to be. This recognition of God is so much greater, so much holier, so much more pure, so much wiser, so much more loving, so much more faithful than we are. And there is an admiration and an adoration and a praise of who God is. And so that is good fear. Uh, good fear is based in a true view of who God is. It is based in recognition of his attributes that we see in his word, that we see in the person of Jesus Christ. It is based in a recognition that God is holy and powerful and kind and gentle and he is for us. And so good fear leads us to trust God and it leads us to draw closer to God. Good fear leads us to trust him and to have greater communion and fellowship with him. And so as a result of that, when we are close to the Lord and we're trusting the Lord, it enables us to live making decisions out of a place of peace and patience and wisdom. So that's, what, that's the place we want to be. So um, bad fear, contrasting, is based on a false view of who God is. It's being afraid of God. It's being terrified of God rather than having a, an admiration, adoration, and a love for God. And so bad fear is based out of a false view of who God is. God is not for me. God's against me. I cannot count on God. God, God is not in control. He doesn't know what he's doing. Obviously, these are not things that we verbalize, but these are things that we believe in our heart. And, and so as a result of that, bad fear leads us to hyper-control, to try to, you know, we've got to save the day. We've got to take matters into our own hands because we can't trust God. So it leads us to hyper-control, and it leads us to withdrawal leads us to withdraw from the Lord in particular. So as a result of that, we make decisions out of fear, out of a sense of doom. We make decisions out of haste, without being thoughtful, and a lot of times out of catastrophizing. And so, and we just don't necessarily feel at peace in those decisions. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I kind of have, I'm a little bit allergic to, uh, you know, you get the phone call of like, hey, does Johnny want to sign up to do this? Uh, sign up for tomorrow. And if, but here's the thing, sign ups, like all the spots will be filled within five minutes. And it's like, uh, I'm, I'm immediately going to be like, yeah, we're not, not, not participating. Not participating because I, uh, I grew up in a house that was like, we kind of operated out of fear. And uh, I'm allergic to it and it's not fun. And so, so with that being said, with fear, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, so with that being said, um, uh, bad, yeah, bad fear is involves a false view of God, us seizing control and withdrawing from the Lord, and involves hasty, unwise, doom-based decisions. And so, yes. Being included in the, you know, like yeah. like an absent view of God. Totally. 
Yeah, so I would say our default mode is we are withdrawn from God. Like to draw near to God in a, in a good fear of God kind of way involves repentance and, and drawing closer to the Lord. And so we'll get into kind of like practical what this looks like at the end. Um, but we can see going into the next page, page two, that um, you know Adam and Eve, we can see a good example of bad fear here. Uh, I'm not going to get too deep into Genesis 3, but you know the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says, you know, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from the tree? And, um, and Eve's like, yeah, that's what he said. But, um, but the, uh, he says, you know, basically God's lying to you. Like he's not, he's not telling you the truth. And so the, the primary thing that the devil is doing, the serpent is doing in, uh, in Genesis 3 is planting a false view of God into the minds and hearts of Adam and Eve. Um, hmm, God's not good. He's not for us. He's against us. He's holding out on us. He's not trustworthy. And so we can see how that they start to operate out of fear. They are afraid of God. They're not in a place of worshipful adoration of God. They're in a place of, I'm afraid of God. And so you see in verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So basically, they're like, we can't trust God, so we now need to operate under our own discretion. Like he said in his word, we shouldn't eat from this tree, but to me it looks pleasing to the eye. So I'm now going to take control over what's right and wrong, and this looks like a good choice. Then uh, when it happens and they eat, and they realize that they're naked, they realize they're sinful, they've got a problem, what do they do? They don't go to the Lord, they now make fig leaves to try to cover their sin. So they're trying to take matters into their own hands, they're operating out of their own self-control, not the positive fruit of the Spirit self-control, but they're in control. Then it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden, but the Lord called them and said, where are you? So what is their reaction to God? They move away. Yeah, they withdraw. So we can see control and withdrawal. They're operating out of fear. They're afraid of God because they have a false view of God. They think God is against them. Rather than operating in a good fear of the Lord and a worshipful adoration, where they instead, they're like, you know, God is forgiving and he's merciful and he's blessed us in all these ways. We have made a mistake. Let's, let's go to him. Let's draw close to him um, based on who he is, and let's let him fix this for us. And ultimately he does, at the end of this chapter, he does make loincloths for them. He covers it. That's, that's redemption. The Lord takes, takes control of the situation. But you can see this example that at the core of what it looks like to operate out of fear. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to look at one example of fear uh, that we wrestle with. Um, and so one lane of fear that we wrestle with is a fear of judgment. A fear of judgment. A fear, a good way to think about this is a fear of what will people think? What will people think? Uh, and that is a very, very real thing uh, for parents. Um, and so a few basic concepts as we go into, and by the way, I'm going to relate this back to good fear versus bad fear at the end. We're going to bring it all full circle. Um, but so first, some of these basic concepts is that we live our lives as if there's an imaginary audience evaluating what we do. Um, you, some of you know this from like teen psychology, this term imaginary audience. 
when a child gets to be a pre-adolescent in middle school, they start to realize that people can formulate an opinion of them. And so one of the really difficult things about being a middle schooler is you have this exaggerated sense that people are watching you and people are judging and evaluating you. That's why when, um, that's why when you have a zit in the seventh grade and you go into the lunchroom, you're convinced that everyone sees your zit. Everyone sees it. I can remember being in seventh grade and there were some, there was a group of people and they were like laughing and talking and I was convinced that they were laughing and talking about me, right? There is so much egocentricity in it, right? And that's just, that's just part of, that's just a developmental reality. It's really hard. That's why Instagram spikes, spikes teen anxiety so bad, especially amongst, uh, amongst middle schoolers, is because their sense of audience, imaginary audience, is already exaggerated it's not rational, it's not real. Like, everyone else is worried about themselves, they're not worried about your zit, right? But to them, the whole world is watching me, that creates a bunch of, of, a bunch of anxiety. Well, now you have Instagram where there is a concrete validation that everyone is watching you because they are. And they're liking or not liking your stuff. Uh, that's a, that, that was for free, that was all the side. Um, but anyhow, and so, so with that being said, uh, the audience, this is, we never outgrow this. Like we all kind of live with an exaggerated sense of audience. Now, as we get older, we can kind of talk ourselves down a little bit. We do know that like, you know, as, as a good friend of mine who's in this room said, you know what, bud, people just really aren't as interested in you as you think they are. <laughs> and it's true, it's true. Um, and, uh, and so, and there's a freedom in that, but, but we don't totally outgrow it. And here's the thing, the audience, there's hardly ever a gracious audience, right? The audiences that we concern ourselves with are audiences that are evaluating us and that we feel like are going to condemn us. That's what we're afraid of. And so that's just something to be aware of. That's, that's a human reality. Um, and so, you know, some examples of this, of human audiences are, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go big to start out with. It's your, it's your uh, I have great in-laws. I love my in-laws, they're wonderful. And everyone has in-laws. And we all know that there is this, you have this fear that your in-laws are evaluating your parenting or that your parents, your own parents, are evaluating your parenting, right? I mean, so I know for some people, like going to, to visit their in-laws or going to be with their parents, I knew, I knew a woman who's like my mom's age who would literally break out in hives because her mom was so critical of her and so critical of her parenting that it created so much anxiety for her that she would have a rash all over her body at the idea of traveling to go see her mom. And I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is where parents, uh, I've been really fortunate. My parents are super supportive. I've never heard my parents say anything critical about our parenting. That's not because there's not plenty to criticize. <laughs> but, but I know for a lot of people, parents just for whatever reason say passive aggressive things or, you know, or, or explicit things to you that make you feel condemned in your parenting, right? And the reality is, is we all already feel like we're failing. We all already feel inadequate, like we're screwing up our kids, and we're not doing enough, and we're the worst parent in the whole world, and we're gonna be better than our parents, but we're not better than our parents, da, 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 all that kind of stuff, right? And so, uh, so that's, that's, that's an example of an audience, that where we fear, what will they think? A second audience is sometimes it's like our kids' teachers, you know, I am embarrassed to admit this, but I'm, I'm definitely of the ilk of like, 
my kids, like I'm the authority over my kids, and if we're going to go take a couple days off to go on a vacation as a family and miss school, we're going to do that because we're in elementary school and who really cares, right? And still, there is this sense of like, oh, are the parents going to think, are they going to think we're bad parents or are they going to think we're failing our kid in their education? You know, that's an audience, right? The, the, you know, gosh, you know, we come out of the parent-teacher conference and we're supposed to be doing all this kind of stuff at home and we don't really do these things. Oh my gosh, what's, what's the teacher going to think? We're not reading exactly 20 minutes a night. No, no. It's an audience, you're right? The teacher is an audience. Um, there, um, there is, and then there's just like the, the community, you know, like everyone out there that we are convinced is watching us and none of them really care, but it's real. It's very real. But like, what will people think if dot, 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 dot. And so some stories... I shouldn't have included this on the worksheet. Oh, Lord. I did. Um, but some stories, I have seen this take play out in really damaging ways. I have seen, uh, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I am limiting these stories to stories from like more than 10 years ago, being honest. But I have seen um, situations where uh, a child nearly died. A child was in intensive care. This is not a kid in our, this is not a child who was in our church. Um, a child nearly died. Um, they had a, they had some mental health and addiction issues and they were in ICU for four days and it was touch and go. And I can remember once the, once it was clear the child was going to live, the conversation did not turn to, we need to get this child into an inpatient situation or we need to get this child into, you know, something intensive needs to happen. Our child has almost died. The conversation was immediately focused on damage control in terms of perception. The child never went to an inpatient situation, never got any kind of treatment because they were afraid of how will this affect the way that he's viewed, we're viewed, uh, how will this affect you know, like him being included in the social circles or his career prospects or getting into the country club, literally. And so that is, that is an extreme example um, an extreme example, but that is that gives us a sense of the fear of what people think having an, a really disproportionate effect on you know on, on parenting. And so um, that's probably enough for the stories. Uh, but moving on, we can see here that you know it doesn't even have to be anything extreme like that. You know, it's uh, it can just be feeling like oh people are going to think that we're bad parents or that, that we're weird or that we're countercultural if we don't do X, Y, and Z. If we don't participate in this, if we don't do that, so on and so forth. And so, um, and so that, that sense of an audience is very real. And again, the audience is always has impending judgment. They are not looking, the, our imaginary audience is not looking to be gracious and kind to us. Our imaginary audience is always, in our mind, looking to condemn us. And so here's the thing. Is that what is a um, what is a now? We're, by the way, things are about to get encouraging. Um, but uh, what is a psychological and social reality has its roots in a vertical spiritual reality. Okay, in our hearts, at the core, because we're made in the image of God and we're made with eternity on our hearts, the ultimate audience that we're concerned about is God. That's the audience, it may in a concrete way play out in a fear of the audience of our in-laws or your parents or your teachers, the college admissions officer who's going to read your child's resume, the audience of the coaches or the community, whoever it is. 
But at the core, in reality, the audience that we are concerned about is God himself. That is our primary audience that we're concerned about. Um, and that's, that's why when we start to have this kind of fear and we turn this, we, we turn to a, and, and address this at a spiritual level, that is why there can be such incredible peace to come, peace and serenity that comes to us when we start to deal with this at a spiritual plane. And so first thing is God is, like I said, God is the ultimate audience. He's all knowing and he's all seeing. And so we have this view, and this is a, a view that is grounded in reality, that we will go before God and, and that there will be a final judgment. And so the deepest fear of mankind is that we will be rejected by God in the end, that we will be rejected by God and that we will live in alienation and by ourselves forever. That is, that is at the core our deepest fear. And all other fears are just a manifestation of that big fear. And so there is a spiritual audience. The, the, the real audience is God. Um, so scripture number one in John, John uh, 4.18, it speaks to this reality. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been imperfect not been perfected in love so when it says for fear has to do with punishment that word for punishment is used two other places in the new testament one of them is second peter chapter 2 verse 9 it says then the lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the, the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So you can see this has like final judgment type connotations. And so what, it's, what does it say? So, so like I said, there is this fear of ultimate rejection by God. That's the ultimate audience at the bottom of our heart. And that's really the place when we're talking about audience that's driving our fear, fear of rejection by the Lord. But what does it say, cast out that fear? Perfect love. Where's the only place we find perfect love? It's in God. Right? It is in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, so that is why you can see this contrast between the two. When, there is, uh, when we're operating under fear, we're operating with the assumption that that, that that audience, God, is going to reject us. What counters that? What casts out that fear? What casts it out is recognizing that we actually live under the perfect love and acceptance of God. Because of Jesus, like Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no judgment or rejection at all from God. That, the possibility of that has been completely eliminated by Jesus. And so, uh, so taking this, um, let me, sorry, let me go, um, um, hmm. shall I go there? Nope, not going to go there. We're, just, we're not going to go to Revelation 6. We're going we're gonna to land the plane there. Um, so you can see here that, uh, let's go to this final, final part of the sheet here where it says examples. Um, and I listed some examples of, of places where we could be worried about people's, you know, the judgment of the human audience. How do we deal with that? So this is getting very practical. So let's say, <coughs> let's say that you live, in, you live with a sense of fear and judgment about what your parents or your in-laws think about your parenting. Um, okay, so what is a first step in this? A first step in repentance is, is remembering, hey, this is, yes, there is a social, psychological, personal reality to this, 
But the first step in repenting is to say, this is ultimately a spiritual issue. That's, that's where the foundations of my fear are being driven. My, my fear of my mother's or my father's or my father-in-law's rejection is, is really a fear that God is going to reject me. Okay? And so then we move, going back to good fear, bad fear, we move to a true view of God. Like, is that true that God is going to reject me? No, that is not true. Like, look, God accepts me through Christ. God approves of me through Christ. God, you know, blesses me through Christ. Um, and so, as we do that, as we take it to a spiritual plane and we remember truly who God is, then um, we can draw closer to the Lord through prayer and through praise. And by, and by speaking, reminding ourselves of the truth through prayer, saying, you know, God, you're good, you're loving. God, I can trust you. Thank you, Jesus, that you've removed my, you know, removed judgment from me. And then finally, I operate then out of this trust and intimacy, not fear. So you have the situation where you really think you might need to hold back your child, but you're worried about what other people think. And so you recognize that that is a factor in your consciousness in this. So it would look like, Lord, I'm going I'm to repent from worrying about what they think, and I'm going to remember, God, that this is, this is a spiritual issue. And Lord, I, I'm going to confess that I'm afraid of your, of, of your condemnation, of your judgment, uh, and Lord, I know that's not true. Lord, what's true is that you love me, that Jesus has died for my sins, that, that there's no condemnation for me. And Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you for your acceptance. I thank you for your love. And I draw close to you, Lord. And Lord, now help me to think about this situation under your perfect love, under your perfect love and acceptance of me, knowing that there's no, there's no condemnation, there's no rejection, there's no, uh, there's no rejection of me at stake at all in this. Like, your perfect love for me is secure. And now, Lord, help me to navigate this situation, not from a place of fear, but from a place of knowing your love and out of a place of knowing the truth of who you are. And so that is what it kind of looks like in this, in this realm. Next week, we're going to talk about fear in terms of threat, uh, uh, feeling a sense of threat personally, physically, whatever, as something that, 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 that drives fear and how it is in the Psalms that the Lord helps us to deal with that. Let me pray for us. If anybody wants to, I went long, if anybody wants to chitty chat afterwards, ask questions, um, I'm here. So let's pray. God, thanks for today. Thanks for your perfect love. And um, Father, thank you that uh, perfect love casts out fear and help us, Lord, uh, help us to operate out of, out, out of the truth of who you are. A good and kind God who um, would rather die than spend eternity without us. And uh, who does not long to reject and to judge, but who longs to accept uh, and to embrace. And so we ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.